Amen. Well, good morning, Harvest. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of uh, serving here at Harvest as an associate pastor. Whether you're joining us in person or tuning in online, we're so thankful that you have chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. And obviously, we've come to this point in the, the service. We're ready to jump into God's Word. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles or your smartphones or, or whatever it is you tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me this morning in Revelation chapter 2? Uh, we're going to be in Revelation 2 this morning as we continue our Letters to the Church sermon series. We started last week, and obviously all of Scripture is to the church and for the church, but when we come to specifically Revelation 2 and 3, we have an opportunity to come to literal letters that were from Jesus to his churches, literally dictated by Jesus, and they're for us today as well. So even if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would uh, love it and would encourage you to be able to follow along somehow with us as we look to God's Word. Uh, there's a couple of ways you could do that. Uh, you could just pull out a phone and Google Revelation 2 ESV, and it will pop right up for you so you can follow along that way. Or I'm sure someone sitting around you would be more than happy to share with you. Or if you'd prefer a paper copy, we have some in the back uh, that we would love for you to just take and keep as our gift to you if you don't have God's Word at all. But Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And if you're already there, let's go ahead and stop and pause and pray for our time together in God's Word this morning. Father, we do love you. May it be increasingly so as we come to your word this morning. As we look at this powerful passage in Revelation 2, this letter from your son to his church, Father, we will see incredible realities this morning. We will see comforting realities to know that, that, that Jesus is holding us and walking among us, and he knows everything that we're facing right now. Father, we praise you for that. What, what grace that is. What an encouragement that is. And so as we come to your word, Father, would you do that? Would you encourage us? But would you also challenge us and also to equip us to make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ? It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, at the risk of making you all jealous this morning, I want to let you know about my first car. Uh, my first car was a baby blue 1997 Chevrolet Lumina. Now, just in case you don't really know that much about cars and you're not a car person and, and, and you're wondering why you should be jealous of that, let me just let you know about this car. It came complete with a cassette player and manual roll-down windows. Yeah, not every 16-year-old's dream car. Okay, it's nobody's, nobody's real dream car. Uh, it looked like a baby blue boat on wheels. And let's just say I did not drive that car for a day longer than I needed to. Like, I couldn't wait to move on from this car and get to something bigger and better. I wanted an SUV, so, so eventually I, I, I sold that car, and I bought a bright red 2004 Ford Escape. Nothing too fancy, but definitely way nicer. It had more room, less miles. I loved that car. Like, I, I loved this car so much. It was a dream compared to the, the first car that I had. I've mentioned before in, in lots of conversations and even from the pulpit that I am not a handy person whatsoever, and that definitely carries over to my mechanical knowledge of cars. Uh, but just, just for clarity's sake, I'm not completely useless. I do know a few things. I know that there's got to be gas in the tank. I know there's got to be air in the tires. Uh, I know you have to get an oil change like every 100,000 miles or so, something, something along there. Just kidding. I actually do know it's 3,000. Um, but I did all of that religiously. I kept the car clean and washed, and I loved this car. I wanted to take care of it. I wanted this car to last for years. 
But after driving that uh, 2004 Ford Escape for a couple of years, I started to notice that it would do something weird every once in a while. I'd just be driving along the road and, and doing minding my own business, and, and all of a sudden, for, for no reason whatsoever, the car would just jerk and, and do random things at random times. And, and, and being the expert mechanic that I am, um, I ignored it, because that's what I would naturally do there. And after all, I'd been doing everything that I thought needed to be done for that car. It had gas in the tank. I was giving it oil changes. I was making sure it had airs in the tire. I was, uh, I, I was washing it. And then one day, we're, one day before we were married, uh, Veronica and I, uh, we, we picked up her little brothers to take them to their first Orioles game. And we were driving down I-95 from Harford County towards Baltimore City so we could go to this Orioles game. And, and I remember it happening. We were driving down the highway. It did its jerk thing. And then all of a sudden, there was no more power. Something happened. The engine was still running, so I knew it wasn't the engine, but no matter how hard I pressed the accelerator, it really wasn't going anywhere. It was just creeping forward, and so I managed to, to pull it off to the side of the road and, and get it to creep up an exit ramp up into a park and ride where it came to a rest, its final rest, and I called a friend of mine to come take a look at it because he actually did know about cars. It didn't take him long when he got there. He recognized pretty quickly that the transmission in my car was shot. Now, don't miss this. The car still looked great. The gas tank was full. There weren't any flat tires. Everything on the outside of that car looked completely fine. It was in great condition. But there was something very, very wrong underneath the surface. Something so wrong that it didn't matter how nice the car looked, if, it, it would be useless if the problem underneath the hood wasn't fixed. In our passage this morning, the church in Ephesus got the same diagnosis that my car did that day. By all outward appearances, this was a solid church. They had a, a rich spiritual heritage that included being planted by Paul. It was nurtured by Aquila and Priscilla and, and Timothy. It was pastored by John, and church tradition even tells us that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she was being cared for by John, as Jesus asked him to do at the cross, she probably was even a member of this church at some points. It was located in a thriving city that was considered one of the most influential centers in Asia, and much like we are here in the Baltimore, D.C., Annapolis area, at least on the surface level, this church was situated to be a powerful gospel outpost for the kingdom of God. But by this point in the church's history... Something was very, very wrong beneath the surface. And in Jesus' letter to his church that we're going to look at this morning in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, he tells the church in Ephesus about the problem beneath the hood. He's not going to ignore the problem. He's not going to turn a blind eye and act like everything's fine. He's going to confront and correct and care for his people just like he does today. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's our big idea, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage that's going to tie it together for us. Our big idea this morning is this, that Jesus is satisfied with nothing less than a love for him that drives everything we do. That Jesus is satisfied with nothing less than a love for him that drives everything we do. See, the church in Ephesus was a careless church. They'd lost a, an essential part of their walk with Jesus. There was something wrong under the hood. And so as he's writing to them, Jesus takes the opportunity to basically say three things that we're going to look at this morning to his church in Ephesus. And first, he, he writes them and he says, Dear careless church, I want you to know that I care about you. I want you to know that I, I care about you. If you have your Bibles open, look with me back at Revelation chapter 2, at verse 1 and into the beginning of verse 2. 
The Apostle John, literally writing under the dictation of Jesus Christ himself, says this. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and then we'll stop with this, I know. Well, this is our second week in the book of Revelation, and and I do want to acknowledge the elephant in the room that, that yes, the book of Revelation can be somewhat uh, intimidating to try to read and understand. Parts of Revelation are filled with with so many signs and symbols that sometimes we're tempted to just scratch our heads and and walk away and move on to things that are, are clear in Scripture. And for sure, the later chapters of Revelation can be confusing, but, but in particular, these first few chapters are, are extremely clear. As Dan preached last week, it's all about Jesus. It's really that simple. Like One of the themes of the book of Revelation that is for us is, is simply this, to remember your Redeemer. And when you approach Revelation with that in mind, it makes the whole thing way easier to process. In fact, when you remember your Redeemer as you approach the book of Revelation, it'll, it'll move you from a, from a position of confusion and anxiety to confidence and awe at the things that we see in the book of Revelation. But before John gets to the more complicated stuff, these first few chapters that we're going to be looking at in this series are extremely straightforward. Like we're used to reading letters to the churches in the New Testament, and that's basically all these chapters are, except that while, yes, every word in the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we've already said this morning, these seven letters to the seven churches are literally dictated by Jesus himself. And he starts with this church in Ephesus. But even then, when we come to the first verse, there's a, there's a few things that might be unclear for us, at least at first glance. We might come to it with questions like, after reading it, what angels are getting their mail in their, in their mailbox in Ephesus? What does that even mean? Well, that's a simple one. The Greek word angel here can pretty much always be translated as either angel or messenger. And in some cases, it, it clearly means what our minds naturally go to when we think of angels. But in other cases, it literally just means messenger. And that's the case here. This, this angel or messenger is the pastor or elder or representative of the church. And Jesus is sending a letter to that angel, the messenger, the, the pastor, the elder here. But the message itself of the letter is for the entire church. And again, part of that message right up front is is simply this. Dear careless church, I want you to know that I care about you. That's the message from Jesus, that I care about you. We know this, that he cares in verse 1 because he he tells us what he's doing. It says, he, that's Jesus, is holding the seven stars in his right hand. And those stars are just another picture for the angels, the messengers, the pastors, the elders. And he's already mentioned Just think about that picture for a second, that Jesus is holding the seven stars in his hand. How encouraging is it to know that Jesus himself, our risen and reigning redeemer, is literally holding the elders of every church, including ours, in his hand right now. He's holding Dan Hammer and Ted Dressel and Don Webster and Andrew Watkins in his grip and his control to care for and correct and counsel us as we serve as under shepherds of his church. Because Jesus cares about his church. So he's holding the elders of every church in his right hand. And guess what? There's no chance that he will accidentally drop any of the elders because he was trying to carry all of the elders in the world in one hand and trying to carry the grocers in the other. That's not a concern for Jesus. No, he's God. He is completely capable of this. He can handle it and he cares. That should instill incredible confidence in us, in our risen and reigning Savior. 
But that's not the only way that we see he cares. Verse 1 also tells us that not only is he holding the seven stars in his right hand, he's also walking among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus himself told us what those lampstands represent back at the end of chapter 1. These lampstands represent the churches. So just think about the picture back in in verse 1. Jesus is holding the leaders of these churches in his right hand, and he's walking around the churches. Notice it doesn't say he's walking over the churches, though that is true. Jesus is over the churches, but it says he's, he's among the churches. He's with them. He's present. He's there. He cares. He's among his churches. Dr. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, says that, so that Jesus is no absentee landlord. In other words, he's actively and intimately involved in what's going on both at Harvest Bible Chapel Ephesus in this passage and Harvest Bible Chapel Annapolis this morning because he cares about his church. He's not just popping in to check up on the church every once in a while to see how things are going. No, he paid for the church with his own blood, and he's not about to leave the church to try to figure things out on their own. He cares about his church. He loves his church. He's present, and he knows every detail about the church. And, and we know that this morning because as we look at the first two verses of, of, the first two words of verse 2, Jesus says two words that can both be very comforting for us, but also very chilling for us. He says, I know. He says, I care, and I know. So he's holding his leaders, he's walking around his churches, and he he knows them both perfectly. Think about that. Jesus knows everything that our church is facing right now. He knows what families are hurting. He knows what marriages are struggling. He knows where the relational strife and division is. He knows who's discouraged this morning. He knows who's anxious this morning about things to come. He knows the struggles that small groups face to balance busy schedules and to come together and and, and push towards breakthroughs in their discipleship. He even knows the the, the people that you're trying to reach with the gospel. He even knows the amount of goldfish that are being dropped in Harvest Kids right now and ground into the carpet by our toddlers in preschool. He knows intimately. He's actively involved. He knows and he cares. It's perfectly clear that no church's lampstand will accidentally fall over because he got distracted and looked the other way as he was walking around. The Jesus that we saw last week in chapter one is completely capable and in control and he cares about his church. So so church, take comfort in that. He cares about you. He cares about us. But here's the thing, while knowing that Jesus cares brings incredible assurance for us, it also comes with it complete accountability. See, moving on in his letter, second, Jesus says, Dear careless church, not only do I want you to know that I care about you, but I also want you to know that I condemn loveless loyalty. Dear careless church, I condemn loveless loyalty. Look back with me at verses 2 through 4 and verse 6 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus goes on and he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Skipping down to verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
I don't know about you, but I love getting mail. Uh, I love getting mail so much that my wife tends to make fun of me for the fact that, that our mail doesn't tend to sit in our mailbox for more than like five minutes if I'm home because I can't wait to go check the mail. I know it's a little creepy, but like I can tell when our mailman's been on vacation because of the time that our mail gets delivered. I know it's weird, but I love getting mail. Maybe you can relate to that. And if, if we love getting mail that much, then just imagine what it would have been like to get a letter literally from Jesus himself. Just imagine the, the church in Ephesus huddled together in someone's living room as the pastor starts reading a letter from Jesus to this church. I can imagine them sitting on the edge of their seats as they start hearing the words of Jesus written specifically to them. And right away, as Jesus is, is writing to them, we get a, an idea of what this church was like. Again, on the surface, this seems like a fantastic church. This, this seems like a church that if I was moving to Ephesus, I would want to go check out this church. I know there's a lot of ways we're tempted to evaluate churches today, but to, to really oversimplify things, we could just say there's really two important categories to evaluate churches by. We can evaluate them by, by their belief and by their behavior. Like when I'm looking at a church, those are the things that I want to know about. I, I want to know what they believe. Do they, do they have their doctrine down or do they tend to be wishy-washy when it comes to theology? Are they, are they clear about the essentials of God's word for the church? But I also want to know how they behave. Are they, are they serving the Lord or are they sitting on the bench? How do they react when they face hard things? How do they respond when they come in conflict with one another? And really, does what they believe drive how they behave? Because those two should be absolutely connected at all times. So, so that's how we could evaluate the church. So, so let's look at the church's behavior first. This was not a lazy church. In verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil. That's hard work. They're busy. They worked hard for Christ. When the sign-up sheet went out for things to do or projects to complete or events to attend or serving teams to join, the sign-up sheet filled up fast. These people's calendars were filled with church stuff. They didn't have a whole lot of evenings and Saturday mornings free because they were busy working for the Lord. And that's great. You should be proud of them for that. Not only was this not a lazy church, it wasn't a quitting church either. Verse 2, Jesus also says that he knows their patient endurance. And in verse 3, again, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And those verses that uses one of my absolutely favorite Greek words, and understanding that word can really help us understand a lot about the character of this church. Verses 2 and 3, when it's talking about patient endurance, that's the Greek word hupomene that Dan mentioned last week. It, it means steadfastness, and even more literally, it means to remain under. Like, like here's the trial, it's up here, it's pushing down on you, and you're, you're down here, and you've got a choice to make. Am I going to remain under the trial for God's glory, or am I going to try to run away from it? That's what, that's what hupomene means, it's steadfastness. It's patience in hard times, it's not running from hard things, but standing strong when the pressure's on. It's holding on tight. And so that raises the question for us as we talk about the church in Ephesus. Well, what, what was this church facing? Why did they need hupomene? Why did they have to, why did they have to stand firm? Well, let's just say that the church in Ephesus did not exist in a cultural moment or place where Christian values were tolerated, much less accepted and encouraged. From the day they were planted by Paul, they, they faced a city and a culture where they were mocked and persecuted and pushed to the fringes of society because of the wickedness around them. 
Specifically in their culture, there was sexual sin everywhere. And Acts 19 tells us that when Paul first showed up and started preaching the gospel and God started saving people and building his church, lives were being changed. And as lives were being changed, one of the the immediate things that was happening as lives were being changed was people were turning from worshiping idols of the, the Greek goddess Artemis. And when that happened then, the idol makers in the city of Ephesus started losing their business. They weren't too big fans of losing that much business. And so, so Acts 19 tells us about a man named Demetrius who, who was losing business to the point where he started a literal riot to go after Paul, and we could say his, his church planning core group, to, to push them and to persecute them. This was the culture that these people were living in. I don't think it's all that hard for us to imagine. That's the kind of stuff this church would have faced on a regular basis. And then here in Revelation chapter 2, decades after the church was planted by Paul, Jesus writes to his church, he says, I see you. I know what you're facing. I, I know it's not easy, but you're staying strong. You're, you're standing firm. You're not quitting. You've got, you've got hupomene. You're, you're, you're remaining under in this trial, and you're standing firm. You're not, you're not quitting. You're, 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 you're not running away from the pressure. You're not compromising. You're not taking the easy way out. You're bearing up for my name's sake. Good job. Proud of you. Sincerely, I'm proud of you. A plus. But not only do they get an A plus for their behavior, they also get an A plus for their belief as well. Second part of verse two, Jesus says, he, he knows how you can not bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Then in verse six, he says that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. Just real quick, the Nicolaitans were false teachers who abused the grace of the gospel by, by holding on to their pagan practices. They basically said that you can do whatever you want and live however you want as long as you at least say that you believe in Jesus. That they believe that nothing needs to change, no, no transformation needs to take, in your, take place in your life. And of course, we know that's not true. When Jesus saves you, he will change you. Transformation will happen. Life change will happen. The Ephesian church didn't buy into this false teaching. They were serious about doctrinal purity. They were serious about pursuing holiness and believing rightly, so they weren't going to let culture around them have too much influence on their lives. They knew what scripture said, and so, so as they were sitting at home and, and scrolling through Facebook and they came across some self-proclaimed pastor or teacher somewhere saying stuff that might have sounded right, they knew right away whether or not it was actually right because they tested everything against God's word. They weren't going to fall for a bunch of nonsense. They were discerning. I love this. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, once said that discernment isn't knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. That's these people. They were discerning. They knew the difference between right and almost right. They could sniff out bad doctrine a mile away, and I hope that we can too. So Jesus, again, sincerely commends them for all of that, their belief and their behavior. He gives them A pluses, two thumbs up, five stars, whatever rating system you prefer. Jesus is applauding them. And at this point, as they're listening to this letter being read, I can imagine them looking around, starting to nod at each other, like, we're nailing it. Jesus is proud of us, like fist bump. We've got this going on. But then in verse four, the tone shifts. Jesus says, but I have this against you. Imagine hearing those words from Jesus. 
But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Everything looked great on the surface, but underneath the hood, there was something very wrong. The car was clean, but the transmission was shot. It's as if Jesus says, you know, I'm really glad to see how you're doing when it comes to belief and behavior. I, I am proud of you for that. I hope you'll, I hope you'll keep that up. But I got a problem with you. At some point along the way, you wandered away from, from loving me above all else. So here's the problem. At some point in the life of this church, the, the secondary became primary. The emphasis had shifted away from their master to their ministry. Instead of believing in and behaving for their Savior, they started living like believing and behaving was their Savior. They'd lost their love for Jesus that was supposed to be driving everything they did. So we've got to understand some things here. It's entirely possible to love good doctrine more than you love Jesus. And that's wrong. It's entirely possible for us to love serving and working for Christ more than we love Christ himself. And that's wrong. It's entirely possible to love hanging out in small groups and building friendships and building relationships more than you love Jesus. And that's wrong. It's entirely possible to love taking courageous stands in the face of a wicked culture more than you love Jesus, and that's wrong. In fact, I'll go a step further. It's possible to do all of those things and not love Jesus at all, and that should scare us to death. That's what Jesus was confronting here. He hits it head on because Jesus is satisfied with nothing less than a love for him that drives everything we do doesn't matter how loyal you are to the cause of Christ if you don't love him. He doesn't want loveless loyalty. In fact, he condemns it. Don't get me wrong, our belief and our behavior are essential. Belief and behavior are non-negotiables for followers of Christ. He cares about them and so should we, but if we're doing them for any reason other than simply because we love Jesus, then there's a major problem beneath the surface. We can never move past a love for Jesus that drives everything that we do. I want you to think back with me for a second to when you first learned how to ride a bike. For me, it was on vacation visiting my cousins in Mobile, Alabama one summer. And I don't remember if it was my cousins or my aunt or uncle or my parents or whoever's bright idea it was, but somebody decided to teach me how to ride a bike on a gravel driveway because it would have made so much more sense to, not, to, you know, to avoid the smooth parking lots. But that's how we did it. I remember my parents taking the training wheels off my bike, and those first few times we did this, they would next, go next to me and hold the handlebars and hold the seat and, and make sure that I was okay. But the next few times we did it, they would, they would take their hands off my bike for a few seconds as I was, as I was learning balance. It only took a, a few falls into the bushes and the gravel before I was ready to just quit and move on and say, let's put the training wheels back. Like, it was fine with the training wheels. Let's go back to that. But eventually I got the hang of it. I got more comfortable and I said, I never want to go back to training wheels and never looked back. But see, the most important part of learning how to ride a bike is balance. If you don't have balance, it won't matter how long you've been riding, how expensive your bike is, or how much air you have in the tires. If you don't have balance as you're riding a bike, you're going to fall. But so often as Christians, we're tempted to view our love for Jesus as the training wheels for the Christian life. That loving Jesus is, is, sure, it's helpful at first until we get the hang of a few things, but, but once we figure those things out, we'll take it from here. We can, we can handle the, the expertise that we need as Christians. That's what we think, at least. In other words, at some point, whether it's intentional or not, 
We get comfortable to the point where if we're not careful, we'll end up abandoning what we think is just our training wheels for the Christian life and just keep going on our own. Yes, of course we love Jesus at first. Of, of course we couldn't imagine following him without loving him at first. But the more that we learn and the more we do and the more years that pass, the more we run the risk of letting our love for our Savior slip away. Sure, we'll go through the motions. We'll, we'll say it's for Jesus. We'll say we still love him, but it's really all about us. Friends, your love for Jesus is not the training wheels for the Christian life. Your love for Jesus is the balance that you need, whether you're a little kid first learning how to ride your bike in your parents' driveway, or you're a, a rider in the Tour de France going 63 miles an hour downhill around a curve. Because just like a bicyclist without balance is heading for disaster, it doesn't matter how rightly you believe or how well you behave, if you don't love Jesus, you're headed for disaster. If you don't love Jesus, you will fail in your relationships with one another. If you don't love Jesus, you will, you will fall in your growth and discipleship in him. If you don't love Jesus, you will fail as a leader that's trying to serve him. And so I have to ask you this morning, how's your heart? How's your heart? How's your love for Jesus right now? Where are you turning to strengthen your discipleship or to navigate church life? Are you turning towards Jesus? Or are you leading to your own competence and knowledge and, and good behavior? I've got to stop and wrestle with that question seriously. And there's, there's really no way to do it other than just be brutally honest with ourselves and lay our hearts bare before the Holy Spirit and ask him to show us where we've gone wrong, to show us if our love for the Lord is slipping. See, when we're faced with questions like that, it's, it's so tempting for us in our culture to try to sit down and come up with some clever list of three questions or some diagnostic tool to, to run through to, to test and evaluate our love for Jesus. We could sit here and ask ourselves questions like, well, when was the last time I did this? Or how often do I do that? Or, or, or am I doing this enough? But, but here's the problem. There's no behavioral or doctrinal test that you can give yourselves to come to the answer of whether or not you love Jesus. Because if there was, the church in Ephesus would have passed it with flying colors and twice on Sundays. They would have aced that test. At its deepest root, our love for Jesus is an emotion, an affection, as we remember our Redeemer. But let me be very clear, it's not just an emotion. It's an emotion that has to be grounded in the truth of his love for us and what he did for us on the cross. Every single one of us will struggle from time to time with that. And like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But here's the good news for us this morning. When our love for Jesus is lacking, when we're starting to walk away, when we've grown careless like the Ephesian church did, there's still grace. There's still a way back home. See, as the divine quality control inspector walked around his churches in the book of Revelation, he, he, he knew everything, and he looks at the church in Ephesus and he says, yes, the condition is critical, but it's not hopeless. There's still grace. Even though the Ephesians lost their first love and just started to go through the motions, Jesus wrote to them, and the third thing that he says for them is, dear careless church, I want you to know that I correct with grace. Dear Careless Church, I want you to know that I correct with grace. Look back with me one last time at Revelation 2, verses 5 and verse 7. Verse 5, he says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Then verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus tells the Ephesians that it's not too late. He's looked under the hood, and while, while, while things are bad, they can still get their transmission fixed. How awesome is it that, that Jesus has the grace to give us second chances? How awesome is it that, that this passage doesn't just end after verse 4? It doesn't end by saying, you know what? You had your shot. You had your chance to follow me and get things right, but, but at some point you started loving things about me and things for me more than you love the actual me, so now I'm done with you. I'm, I'm moving on. We've got, we've got six more churches we can deal with, and I, I'm done with you, Ephesus. How awesome is it that Jesus does not do that? He doesn't do that. It's such grace that Jesus not only tells us where we've gone wrong, but then he lays out the return plan for us right here in the very same passage. In order to correct them with grace, he basically tells the church in Ephesus and us three things. He says, I want you to remember, I want you to repent, and I want you to redo. First, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He says, think back to what things were like when I first saved you. Remember what it was like that day so long ago when you walked out of Artemis' temple there in downtown Ephesus feeling terrible about the wicked things that you'd just done inside? Like, you remember the guilt you felt that day? And you were walking past the marketplace there on your way back home, and you heard this little short guy named Paul standing in the marketplace preaching about Jesus. And, and at first you, you thought the whole thing was crazy, like, this is insane. But then you stopped to listen for a few seconds. You heard Paul say that, that God loves you so much that he sent his own son to come down to this earth as a baby to live a perfect life and then die in your place because you had sinned against God. You heard, him, you heard him talk about how Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross and that while he was hanging there, God poured all of his wrath against your sin out on his son, Jesus Christ, instead. And he said, Paul, as you were listening there that day, he, he, he said that after Jesus died, he was buried, and, and that wasn't the end of the story because three days later, he rose from the dead and, and proving once and for all that he is exactly who he says he is. Paul says, people in Ephesus, do you, or Jesus says, people in Ephesus, do you remember what it was like that day? Remember what you felt when you were first listening to Paul say that, that Jesus would save you if you would turn from your sins and place your faith in him. And you did. And Jesus saved you. And for the first time, you felt free. No more guilt. You were clean. And you couldn't wait to tell everyone that you knew about Jesus. And you cried yourself to sleep at night thinking how thankful you were that Jesus would save someone like you. Do you remember that feeling? And you didn't care what it would cost you, but you were ready to do anything that Jesus would ask you to do because you loved him. Jesus says, remember those old affections. Remember them, repent of your loveless loyalty, and then redo what you used to do. Go back to the way the things were at first. Start doing what you used to do with the same heart you used to do it. To repent is literally to change directions, is to, to make a U-turn. See, when the, the Ephesian church got this letter, they were headed completely in the wrong direction and they needed to change. They were driving their church off a cliff and they needed to, to turn it around by putting Jesus back at the center and letting their love for him drive everything they did. They needed to remember what things were like when they first got saved. They needed to repent and go back to redoing things the way you used to do them. Friends, do you remember what it was like when you were first saved? You think back to that time. 
you're honest with yourself, do you love Jesus the same way now that you did when he first saved you? A healthy walk with Christ will be characterized by a constantly growing love for him that drives everything you do. It means when it's your turn to serve on a Sunday morning, you won't do it because it's a commitment to keep, but because it's a chance to serve your Savior who's given you everything. And that means that when it's time to load up the kids after a long day at work and a rush dinner at home and, and head to a small group where it would be easier to just stay at home and get the kids in bed on time, then you do it not because it's an obligation to, to keep and you'll wonder what people will think about you, but because it's an opportunity to grow in your relationship with your Redeemer and to encourage others and to push them in their own relationship with Christ. And if you don't know that's true in your own heart right now, Jesus says, I want you to know that I correct with grace. So remember, repent, and redo. Ask him for help because you can't do it on your own. But this is a choice. He won't force you to do it. He says, if not, if you don't remember, repent, and redo, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, if you decide to ignore my warning, I'll come and pull the plug on the whole thing. I'll I'll shut the whole thing down. You can call your little gathering whatever you want, but it won't be a church because it's my church and and I'm in charge. I'm the one who gets to say the way things go and you need to love me. That's what Jesus is saying here. Remember verse one, Jesus is the only one who's holding the seven stars and walking among the lampstands. He's the one who's in charge. It's his church, not ours. That's how serious he is about our love for him. He's not satisfied with just heads that can do theology or hands that can serve. He wants your heart. Because remember, Jesus is satisfied with nothing less than a love for him that drives everything you do. I love that Jesus ends this letter with a promise. For sure, this was all hard for the Ephesians to hear as they were sitting there listening to this letter be read. But Jesus ends it by pointing forward to the hope that we have in him for eternity. In verse 7, he, he says, To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what's he talking about here? Is he saying that whoever's strong enough to survive the hard times or whoever's smart enough to memorize a theology book, whoever's hardworking enough to serve him the most, that's the one who gets the prize? No, of course not. He's not saying that. He's, he's pointing us back to the gospel. Listen, we cannot conquer on our own. We can't even make it through a Monday morning on our own, let alone conquer in the way that Jesus is talking about here. We can't overcome. We can't save ourselves. We need him. It's by our faith in him, not our own hard work, that we will overcome. In 1 John 5, John's writing to the same Ephesian church that we're talking about here this morning, and this is what he says. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, the one who conquers is the one who has put their faith in Jesus Christ's own conquering. So have you done that? If not, I hope and pray that you will today. Jesus died for you and and God's free gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life is available to you right now by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So, So turn from your sin and turn towards Christ. But for those of us who have done that, Jesus wants your heart. 
He wants your love for him to be greater than ever before. He wants you to remember your redeemer. And one of the primary ways that he's given us to remember our redeemer is through communion, the Lord's table. So we're going to do that now. So if you would go ahead and pull out the cup and the wafer that's, that's near you and let's move to the Lord's table. Because on the night of his betrayal, as Jesus was gathered with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus gave them and us a visible, tangible picture of what was about to happen to him. The bread, the, the cracker, the wafer represents his body that would be nailed to the cross and broken for us. The juice represents his blood that was shed because we, so that we could be forgiven because as Hebrews 9.22 tells us, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. In order for Jesus, for us to be saved, Jesus had to die. He, we needed a substitute. We needed him. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All, like, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord God, Yahweh, the ruler of the universe, has laid on him, Jesus Christ, his own son, the perfect spotless lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. He died in your place. Do you remember your redeemer? Do you love him? This communion doesn't save you, but it is a picture of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's a reminder of God's incredible love and grace for you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I just ask that you refrain from participating in this part of the service, not, not in a judgmental way, but because scripture makes it clear that, that communion is reserved for, for the church, those that, that, that Christ has saved with his own blood. In 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul gives us the most detailed instructions about communion that we find in scripture. In that passage, he warns those of, the, those of us that are going to participate against coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So, so this is an opportunity to hit the pause button on everything in life. Take a few moments to reflect, to do business with God, to look in the mirror and examine ourselves and pray, confess, repent, remember God's grace and renew your love for him and worship. So while Amy's playing, we're going to just take a few moments to do business with the Lord. I'll be quiet and then I'll lead us in communion. First Corinthians 11, Apostle Paul says, I delivered to you that the, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together.
And he goes on, and he says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, remember your Redeemer. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes. Father, we love you. Again, would it be increasingly so? Help us to remember our Redeemer who has literally given his own life to give us everything. What grace. Father, would you grow us? Would you help us to remember with everything in us what it was like when you first saved us, the, 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 the new emotions of having been called out of darkness and into light and, and, and being made from, moved from death to life. Help us to remember what that was like. Father, would you forgive us for when we go through the motions? Would you forgive us for trying to do things on our own? Would you forgive us for any pride in our belief or our behavior that has tried to push you off your throne? Because you are the only one who deserves our worship. You are the only one who deserves our love. You are the only one who sits reigning over the universe. Help us to redo what we did at first. Move us back towards what, what it was like. Help us to go all in on serving you, not, not to check a box, but in response to who you are, in response to our love for you. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know your son as their personal Lord and Savior, Father, would you draw them to yourself this morning? even with a picture of communion, the, the, the tangible, visible picture of a body that is broken and, and blood that is shed, remind them that they have a Savior who loves them and died for them and is offering them salvation by grace through faith in Him right now. They don't need to and they can't earn it, Father, but they just need to humble themselves, place their faith in You. Father, would You do a work in their hearts right now and be glorified in the worship that we give. In Jesus' name, amen.